I'm Ardra Shepard, and this is Tripping On Air, a place to talk shit about what it's like to have MS. Normally, I like to make everything about me, but MS also affects the people we love. So weighing in from the partner perspective is Alex Hajar, my friend whose wife also has MS. Join us monthly as we dish about everything from symptoms to stigma. If you have MS or you love someone who does, we want to connect with you. Years ago, my husband and I were out for some drinks with some of my colleagues when the conversation turned to trading tales of low-key medical trauma, like the time my high school boyfriend ice skated over my finger. You know, the horrifying stories of slamming your hand in a car door, stepping on a nail, or punching yourself in the face as you attempt to take off your bra. Not one to let a gross story go to waste, my husband started sharing his own cringeworthy anecdote. Well, our cringeworthy anecdote about the time we were in a Montreal hotel room and my MS medications auto-injector jammed. While my husband tried to solve the problem, the device suddenly sprang back to life, catapulting the syringe full of potent medication up into the air before landing it dramatically in the center of his barefooted big toe. Of course, my husband never got to share the climax of this harrowing tale because almost as soon as he started talking, he panicked and went pale, realizing he was outing my MS to my colleagues. His attempt to bail on the story only made things worse as his sketchy plot holes made it sound more like a heroin experiment than however he thought he was spinning it. I should have redirected the conversation to outing his third nipple, but I respect boundaries and that's his story to tell. Instead, I jumped in and confessed the truth. I have MS. Now, Alex is probably thinking, who doesn't know you have MS? And I was open about my MS in the beginning, but I quickly learned that the world sometimes treated me differently because of it. Not always, but enough to make me wary. And for a long time, the pressure to prove my invisible illness, the dismay of being treated like damaged goods, and the fear of being left out or left behind led me to keep my MS classified. Today's episode is about the challenges of being out with MS and why so many trippers stay in the MS closet. To help us better understand this phenomena, our guest today is someone with multiple intersecting identities, including being public about his own MS. Juan Garrido is on the show. Alex, can you tell us a bit more about Juan? Yeah, Juan Garrido is a pretty amazing human being. He dedicates his personal, professional, and academic life to helping others. Through storytelling and community building, Juan has been involved with the 2S, LGBTQ+, and MS communities. As a social impact consultant and avid volunteer, he works with nonprofits and other organizations to ensure equity-deserving groups are able to succeed and lead in their communities. As a graduate of York University and OCAD University, he studied how communities come together in the face of injustice and how to tap into joy while change-making. In his free time, he and his fiance like to explore local parks with their dog, Dora. Juan, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here. Can you tell us how long you've lived with MS and were you always open about your diagnosis? Definitely. Thanks for having me uh, on the show. Excited to chat with you. Uh, I've lived with MS now. I was diagnosed 11 years ago. Um, so it was right at the beginning of my university career. Um, that I was diagnosed after having a few episodes here and there for a couple of years. Um, and I wasn't open right away with it. 
And that was actually on consult from my neurologist at the time. Uh, when I was diagnosed, my neurologist said, don't tell too many people. This is going to make things harder for you in your job. This might make your life a little bit harder in some places. Just right now, you're healthy. Your symptoms are under control. Just don't mention it to other people. And that was really hard. That was really isolating. I, I'm a very kind of extroverted, friendly, social person. And so being told to not share this very important, life-changing thing for me was really hard. Um, and as you know, with MS um, mostly affecting women, MS being more present or more evident as people age, when I looked online for things, it was a lot of images of people who didn't look like me. And so truly, I thought for a while that, oh, I must be the youngest, queerest, brownest, most male person ever to be diagnosed with MS. And that's why I can't find anything. And that's why I'm not supposed to talk about it. Uh, but once I did start about maybe after a year deciding, no, I'm I'm sad because I can't talk about it. I'm sad that I'm not sharing with my loved ones. And I'm sad that I'm not trying to even find other people like me. That's when I really started to come into I guess my own identity as someone living with MS was once I was able to start talking about it and sharing my story a little bit. I feel like there's so much to unpack here. Like, was there any truth in what your neurologist said? I mean, obviously the intentions were probably good, but it sounds like that maybe wasn't the advice you needed. Yeah, I think it was It was coming from a place where I, I've, I've read the stories and I both historically in the recent past and in the present of people with disabilities getting unfair treatment and employment opportunities in workplaces not being accommodating to especially with a condition like MS where energy level changes day to day, ability changes day to day. Of course, we don't want to oversimplify what coming out means for the queer community, nor do we want to downplay the impact of ableism on people with chronic illnesses like MS. But as a member of both the queer and MS communities, can you speak to how homophobia and ableism are similar? Maybe the stigma or fear of profession, uh, professional repercussions, isolation, things like that. Yeah, I, th I think they're similar in that these identities are, for some people, very different, very confusing, something they don't understand. Um, with both the queer and MS communities, I always talk about in terms of it's an ever-expanding tent uh, where more and more identities, more and more expressions of both disability and queerness um, represent themselves and come to light and have more representation that can throw people for a loop at times. And sometimes, unfortunately, that uh, newness of an identity, that newness of an experience that they're learning about comes out as fear, comes out as anger, comes out as, uh, you know, feelings that, uh, you know, that's wrong or that because I don't understand it, it must not be valid. Um, and so with homophobia and ableism, the, oftentimes the experience is my identity is not being validated right now. And because of that underlying assumption where you think I'm faking my illness, my queerness, my gender identity, you're making it harder for me to get a job, for me to get services, for me to find community, for me to be open about, you know, what experiences I'm having, because you're starting from this underlying assumption that it's not real, or it's not something that should be concerning, or something that should be paid attention to or prioritized. When I was diagnosed, I, of course, was keen to connect with other people in the MS community. But I mean, in terms of sharing that identity, publicly, I didn't want my name and MS uttered in the same 
sentence, you know, um, before I needed mobility aids, it used to actually really feel like kind of a messed up compliment when somebody I knew would say, I sometimes forget that you even have MS. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but there was a point when I realized that I forget you have MS is only a compliment if I, if I believe that MS is something that diminishes me. Can you talk, Juan, about the concept of passing in the queer community and how that might relate to what happens sometimes in MS, especially with um, when, when it's in the invisible or non-apparent stages? And if that's something that you've ever experienced. Yeah, definitely. Um, with, with passing, I, I'll get a little academic nerdy here. Uh, passing academically uh, was first coined by a sociologist named Erwin Goffman. And his whole, one of his whole theories was uh, kind of the, all the world's a stage. We're all just actors playing a role, putting on these costumes, saying the lines that we're supposed to in my undergraduate degrees in sociology and drama studies. So his theories are exactly what I wanted to study and experience of like, how do we represent ourselves in the world? And his idea of passing was when a person was able to, uh, you know, come off as part of a different social group than they are a part of, whether that's class, disability, race, gender. Within the queer community, passing uh, comes from uh, and is used most often in trans communities. And it's the idea of a transgender person being able to pass as not transgender or as uh, assigned the sex that they now identify as at birth. Um, and so that um, is, a, is a big debate uh, within trans communities, outside of trans communities, of whether or not passing is the goal or not. For some people it is, and oftentimes that can be linked to safety, that can be linked to the idea of, if I'm not being perceived as visibly transgender, then I am safer right now. Then I can access the spaces that I need to uh, access. We see that with the conversations uh, around the world, around like access to bathrooms, access to you know uh, community services targeted towards certain genders. But if you weren't assigned that gender at birth, can you still access a woman's space if you're a transgender woman? Um, and for some people, um, passing isn't the goal. It's about living your truth and it's about expanding that um, idea of what being a woman is, of being able-bodied is, of being um, a person with a disability looks like. Uh, Janet Mock, who's a writer about the trans experience, says that um, with passing, um, the problem with thinking about passing is saying, it's again, that underlying assumption that, oh, I'm faking it. I'm uh, you know, trying to deceive people when I'm just trying to be myself. So with MS and my experience with MS in terms of passing, uh, over my 11 years, I, I haven't had a lot of very visible symptoms. Um, I haven't, uh, I don't use current, I don't currently use mobility aids. Um, you know, even when I've had uh, uh, relapses where it does become an issue um, in terms of mobility or I'm presenting, I've been able to like not be in public spaces at that time. Um, so that's been my experience. So for the vast majority of it, I haven't presented as someone with MS, except in how I talk about it. And a lot of how I talk about the internal experiences I've had of, you know, one, the more private symptoms that aren't as visible, but then also the fear, the, the stigma, the, you know, endless paperwork that comes along with having a disability in today's age. That's kind of where I experience things, but that's not always what people see right up front. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. I think what was da the damaging narrative for me was telling myself that I was 
passing for so-called normal, you know, to use the word normal in place of healthy or somebody who didn't have MS. And so it did feel like what I was being rewarded for, you know, for like passing as normal or healthy was actually sending myself a pretty toxic message. And, and it, it can make things lonelier as well, I would say, when it's something to hide. And yeah, I, I think it's expanding the idea of what living with a disability looks like, what living with MS looks like. I have language is language and like shifting how I talk about myself, but I, I've come to start talking to myself as, as an able-bodied person living with a disability. Because um, currently I'm able-bodied, um, but I still live with a disability that is still disabling me in certain aspects and one day will change um, in terms of how I'm able to navigate and move around the world and systems and spaces that I'm in. Um, but it's, you know, I just because I pass as able-bodied does not mean that I am not being disabled currently because I have a mass. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's this idea that passing is something conscious all the time or a choice as well. And it's not always. It, it's sometimes just, I would say, how the world perceives anyone else and the judgments that they make about that. I think what I just want to highlight is the, and I think I did, just the the damage that we can do to ourselves when we feel like we can't actually be our authentic selves. But there are consequences also. I think, um, uh, yeah, I'd like to ask, I think, um, I feel like there's a growing argument that the concept of coming out at all is antiquated um it's nobody's business uh but on the other hand coming out signals pride and identity and allows communities to advocate for better rights um access and freedoms um where do you land on this argument when it comes to ms1 yeah i i think uh labels and coming out are an intensely personal and individual thing i think labels specifically can can unite and can divide. Um, you know, it's the idea that uh, you don't put me in a box because of what you're perceiving my experience to be. And at the same time, being able to use this label, being able to find that language allows me to find other people using that or similar language and allows it to grow. Um, with MS, it's, I always say that, you know, it, everyone's MS is different is kind of the, the token phrase. And so everyone's experience with how they're going to want to represent themselves and talk about their MS is going to be different as well. Like I said earlier, I'm, I'm very extroverted. I'm a storyteller. I like sharing a lot of my life. Um, if you Google my name, there's going to be articles and videos where I talk about having MS. And that's one, because I feel comfortable doing that too. That's my you know, my version of giving back to the community. And three, that's also a very personal way that I process things. Like I said, that first year when I had it uh, after my diagnosis, when I didn't talk about it, that was the hardest year that I had at Mass for me because I wasn't able to share that story. Once I was able to share the story with my loved ones and publicly, that's when I started to feel better myself, when I started to process a lot of the feelings of not having enough symptoms to be disabled or having too many symptoms to be able, you know, I was able to start processing that in a public forum, but that's just my experience. I would never tell everyone that, oh, as soon as you get MS, you have to go, uh, you know, go on a magazine article and do a nationwide campaign and start a podcast, do a TED talk. 
if that's not what you want to do, I have friends who have MS who are more like, I want to live my life. You know, I'm glad I, I found you and we'll talk about it one-on-one. I'm not ready to go up on stage at this event to talk about it because that's not my journey. And so that, that's perfect and fine for you. But those labels allow for those uh, individual micro uh, connections. And I think that is more important that then allows people to flourish in the way they want to on that more public or macro scale. I mean, that can definitely feel like one of the added burdens of this disease is like, oh, now it's your job to educate the world on what MS is. And we're definitely not here to say that. Juan, I I just want to, before we move on from this question, I know Alex is dying to ask a question too, but um, you talked about that first year. Did you tell absolutely no one? Did did you have anyone to talk to or were you just not public? Um, I told my family. Um, I was, I had just started university, but I was living away from home for university, but my mom was there at the first few appointments with me. Um, and I think I started to tell a few friends, um, but wasn't very public about it. Wasn't, didn't really tell many people um, until I ended up having my first like, relapse post-diagnosis. That was uh, quite a big one uh, where I had to share. I was like, hey, I'm not feeling great right now. And this is why. And now I have a lot of feelings because now I have to tell you about it in the midst of me feeling like absolute garbage and having every symptom known to man. Well, you also don't want anyone, you don't want anyone thinking that you're doing heroin, right? Yeah. Like, I think sometimes when we are vague about these things, it can lead people to imagine all kinds of other things that might be wrong. Exactly. And being able to contextualize like, hey, I'm having this symptom right now. And it's because I have a mess, which I haven't told you about yet. It's cool. It's fine. But this is happening right now. And I just need your help, you know, getting down the stairs right now. I'm not drunk. I have MS. Exactly. Also, I'm a little drunk. Alex, <laughs> what did you want to ask? Honestly, this might be like a total caveman kind of question, um, as I still feel like I live on the periphery a lot of the time of this. But like, what is it? Was it more difficult for you to come out um, as uh, a member of the gay community or was it is it more difficult to talk about having a disability and, and having MS? It, what is more difficult for you to express, I guess? Um, I, the simple question or a simple answer is it was harder for me to come out as gay. Um, there are. Uh, okay. There is a, a long history of both ableism and homophobia in our world that make it hard for both, uh, in my experience, you know, the added uh, religious, political, uh, cultural context of how people talk about queerness just made that harder. But at the same time, coming out with coming out with MS was easier for me because I'd already done it as a gay man, and that's where these intersecting identities start to become really interesting of uh, the more I come out in who I am as a person, um, it gets easier. I learn how to do it more. I see how to do it in certain contexts and scenarios where I was able to start using some of the practices and things that worked for me when I was coming out as queer when I started coming out uh, with MS. And for example, like I said, coming out and being able to talk about it and find people like me when I came out as queer in high school, I was one of the only queer people in my high school. So it was very isolating. And it was going online and finding other communities. It was starting to be more open and seeing that, oh, there are more people that are queer that I don't know. Uh, and so as soon as I started talking about having MS, 
one, everyone in Canada, I feel, has a story of an aunt with MS. But I also started having other friends say, oh, I also have MS. Or a few months after saying, hey, I also just got diagnosed. And like, you like, can we talk about this? Because now we're going through this at the same time. Um, so coming out with MS, really, I learned about come, I learned about that process through coming out as a queer man. I love that you shared that one. It sounds like you learned that there was great reward in being able to authentically be yourself. And you talked earlier about thinking, you know, um, MS does kind of seem like a white woman's disease. And if you're not a white woman, it's already an isolating, lonely disease. I, and, you know, I imagine that makes it quite a bit lonelier. Being a minority within a minority, is that also part of what drives your activism and your desire for visibility so that you can um, connect with or, you know, find those people and help them realize that all the different faces of, of MS. Can you speak to that a bit? Yes. Uh, when I was diagnosed with MS, I felt like I was the only one and I felt intensely alone. Um, being an immigrant, uh, from a racialized community, I, I didn't have the, I have an aunt with MS story. I didn't know what it was. I had never heard of it. I, automatically assume the worst. And uh, when I go online and just see images of, you know, middle-aged to senior white women in wheelchairs, I thought, well, none of that is me. So what does that mean with my trajectory? How do I, do I be an adult with MS? How do I be a man with MS? How do I uh, be a young person with MS? There wasn't a lot of that out there. And that was an extremely trying and emotionally hard time for me. And so part of me being so public is saying like, hey, you're not alone. You're not going to be the only whatever identity that with MS, whether it's just a person with MS, because there are people all the time being diagnosed with MS who, who are middle-aged white women who are probably like, oh, I'm the first one and I don't know anybody with this. So even if they can see my story, say, oh, there's great. There's another person with MS that I know about. Um, or another man, another queer person, another 18 year old who just started university is like, well, am I allowed to have a career now? Like, what does this mean? And I can say, hey, I've, I've found my career and these are the steps I've taken and this is my personal journey. So it's being able to be public and helping diversify that experience so that having MS is not a monolith, being a queer person is not a monolithic experience, being an immigrant is not a monolithic experience. It's, you know, everything that's being put together that's made my experience. And if there's a part of that that we can share in together, then I think that's great. MS is so common. Canada has one of the highest rates in the world. That's where we are. Uh, like, what is it now? Between three and one in every three and four hundred people. So there are a lot of people who are still not talking about the fact that they have MS that still do not feel safe about sharing that information. So for anyone in the community and the work you're doing, Juan, is so awesome because uh, not everyone has to be loud and visible, but to have those voices and connections and to be able to find those people is so therapeutic and so healing. And it's so, so very important. Yeah, and I really like that you're talking about community because I think that's where people actually realize that they are part of something that's much bigger than them and it's much more diversified than they are 
on their own, right? And so people can find their people, so to speak. But um, as you said earlier, coming out with MS is an ongoing process. It's not a one-time event. How do you actually decide uh, when and with whom to share this information? Great question. And it's one that I am asking myself every day, honestly. And it's changed a lot over the 11 years from being told not to tell anyone to deciding, no, that's how I need to process things. And then becoming very public and I had a lot of really great opportunities and experiences through my networks and through some of the groups I was part of to share that story very publicly. Um, to in the last few years, honestly, being a little less just public and a little less very online than usual. Um, and that's just because I'm not at a stage right now where I uh, am looking for maybe the uh, public accolades. I think my career path has changed. My uh, thoughts of what I want to do and how I want to affect community has changed. Um, but it's also not something I'm hiding anymore either. So it's, it really is dependent day to day. I started, I've been job hunting uh, or job hopping a little bit over the last few years during the pandemic. And there were some jobs where I just, it never came up. And so those are people that, you know, especially a pandemic job, I never met them in person. I didn't share that much online. So whole swath of people that know me and knew me for months, talked to me every day and didn't know about this huge part of me. Um, and then other jobs like the one I'm at right now, where within the first week I was sharing some of the cool work and activism and public uh, education work that I've done with MS. And that's because of the role I'm in, the environment I'm in. And so it was right up the front, like, hey, I have MS. This is how it might impact my work. And, you know, negotiating that with my boss and saying like, hey, I'm going to have a a hundred percent day and the next day might be a 60 percent day and the next day might be a uh i'll work on saturday instead of today day um and then also there's this other side of me that there because i have a mess i also have this intense passion and love for public education for public awareness raising for sharing my story online so here's the full gamut of experience of what that looks like and how this uh changes the space i'm, I'm in right now uh, yeah, everyone knows I have MS. If you Google my name, it's MS. But if the Uber driver asks me what happened or what's wrong with you, like the answer is none of your effing business. You know, it's, it's, uh, I can decide that I am open and, um, and pr proudly disabled, but I still don't owe everyone, um, an answer all the time. It's you, you get to decide over and over and it can be exhausting. And sometimes, there are lots of days when you're just like, I don't feel like educating anyone. And also none of your beeswax. Yeah. And, and there's, um, there's almost like different levels of the coming out story on both ends where sometimes it's, I have a mass, I have a decade's worth of experience about talking, writing, and you know, educating people about it. I've been on national commercials. I've been in national campaigns. There's the, I have a doctor's appointment with a neurologist version of the story. And there's the, I'm not feeling great today version of the story. So there's different levels that, that, changes who I'm talking to, why they're asking, what their intent is, what I'm willing to share, where I'm at just emotionally and energy-wise that day of some days, I don't want to have that whole story. And at the same time, like I said, I, I'm never going to hide parts of it either at this point. I've been lucky and privileged and have designed and created a life for myself where I can be open, where that's just part and parcel of my career. I know that's not a blanket experience. I know that's not something that everyone has been afforded that uh, that privilege for and are in maybe more precarious job situations, are in 
a more you know, I live in Toronto. I live down the street from the MS Research Centers of the world, uh, but that's not everyone's experience. So it's not, uh, you know, I, I would never presume to say my experience is the the way to do it. I wanted to touch on um, the sort of really supportive work that you're doing. So I, be honest, I creeped your social media uh, social media a little bit, and uh, you seem to re as you are now unapologetically yourself. Um, and you spend a lot of time, or you spend time with Riot, the I'll say quote unquote progressive pup, and supporting teachers as you were talking about, and supporting the LGBT youth uh, uh, youth line. Um, what advice do you have for people who uh, want to walk the line sort of between the human need to fit in, uh, but also to be accepted for, for who we are? The way the, the question's phrased is, I, I don't think it's a dichotomy. I don't think those are uh, mutually exclusive. Um, I think um, being who you are will be more, will help you find the space to fit in. It might take a little bit longer and it might not be the traditional avenue to find that space. Uh, I mean, obviously the internet can be a cesspool of garbage and it can also be this great unifying factor that has changed our world for the better in a lot of different ways too, um, <laughs> where queer people, people with invisible disabilities are able to find these communities online. I have been very privileged uh, in the communities I've been a part of in the way I've designed my life. I I always say that, uh, you know, Toronto is my favorite city in the world as, as a queer person who's an immigrant into an interracial relationship with a chronic illness like MS, there's no greater city for me to be in than Toronto because I have my pick of litter for a community for all of those intersecting identities. But I know that there are millions of people around the world living with MS who are not in Toronto. And so their experience is gonna be different than mine in terms of what they have access to, in terms of communities in their backyards, uh, what their safety is, what resources they have. Um, and so I think part of that um, being accepted for who we are is also accepting who you are, each person individually, coming to terms with their own identities in terms of their experience with disability, with queerness, with race, with gender, whatever it might be, with class. Um, and then figuring out what are what is it that you need out of that experience of, I'm a queer person, I'm feeling alone, I'm gonna go find other queer people in the safe way that I can do it. I live with MS and I'm feeling alone, I just need someone's advice of like, hey, how do I talk to my boss on the day that I can't see, but tomorrow I'm gonna be fine. How do I talk to somebody about that? Um, it's coming to terms with your own identity and figuring out what is it that you need. And in theory, that is impossible to find, even if it's not easy to find. I, I love what you said, Juan, about fitting in by being who you are. I think that is awesome advice. We are running out of time, but what a great conversation. I would say that social media is that Yes, it's a garbage fire hellscape a lot of the time, but it is where in the absence of those diverse and inclusive communities that we can find in Toronto, we can find them online. And thank goodness for that. We know 
what MS can do to the body, but the social costs and consequences of MS can be just as devastating. Disability is the largest minority group on the planet, and yet we still haven't found safety in numbers. Just like who you love is nobody's business. When it comes to your health, you don't owe anyone an explanation. It's up to you to decide when sharing personal information is in your best interest. Juan, we want to thank you for being on the show. Can where can we find you on social media? Um, yeah, I, I on Instagram, I'm at uh, Juan underscore Luis G, I believe. Uh, I kind of oscillate between am I a public persona, am I sharing it by myself? So depending on the day you look me up, you might see cute pictures of my dog. It might be locked down. It's this ever expanding journey of how we live online as a people so great well look for for your content and activism thanks to our guest juan for sharing your story here and on social media and thanks for listening trippers we'd love to hear from you are you open about your ms or is ms your sick little secret leave us a comment and if you liked this episode please follow like forward subscribe all the things thank you Thanks for listening to Tripping On Air. Don't forget to visit us at trippingonair.com. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.